Hi guys, this is a bit of an unusual episode. I won't be doing this too often. Today's episode is an unlocked bonus episode from Patreon. I am doing this for a couple of reasons. One, I I thought I, I promote my Patreon on every episode and I ask you to support the podcast But, you know, the content there on Patreon is bonus episodes. That's the main extra content. And a lot of you don't know what those look like or what I'm doing with those. So I thought, you know, for people that might be on the fence about supporting Patreon, this would be a great way to understand what those bonus episodes are. And I made sure to unlock one that is a bit older. This is actually the first one that I ever did last year because I wanted to make sure, obviously, that it had spent a good amount of time as exclusive content for my Patreon members already. And I won't be doing this often, just once or twice a year. So that's one reason. The other is just that these bonus episodes I'm really enjoying and and kind of digging deeper into them than I ever even anticipated. And there's so much good information and there's so much... There's so many episodes that I want to do for the main feed Uh, There's only so much time in a day or a week or a month. So, you know, it it takes time to develop the main feed episodes, especially the, you know, the ones that are biographies of passengers and that sort of thing. So I just, you know, the bonus episodes are a little bit more casual, but they're packed full of information. And I wanted to share one. Uh, This one is on some of the cooks, some of the people that prepared food on Titanic. I talk about it a lot, but I think crew stories are just not shared enough. And I will be doing doing some crew episodes for the main feed, obviously, uh, too. All right. So I hope you enjoy this unlocked bonus episode, and I will see you guys soon. Bye. Hi guys, welcome to the very first bonus episode, Patreon only episode of Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. I am LA Beatles. And obviously, if you're listening to this, then that means you've become a patron of the show. And that's not a concept I take lightly. It's a really big deal. And I cannot thank you enough for supporting the podcast. I am independent podcast using that term is is um is very applicable to me this podcast is me in a tiny corner of our house just outside Austin Texas where i often have to line pillows and weighted blankets up against um the slits on doors in order to get the sound quality where i need it because i have a husband and two very small kids, and all three of them make noises. (laughs) Uh, Right now, I have a bunch of uh, pillows lined up under one door, or along one door, because my husband is playing Final Fantasy on his computer downstairs. So there you go. There's a peek into the independent podcasting world. Uh, It means a lot that you're supporting me. I am a one-woman show. I do all of the research, all of the writing, all of the producing, which is why it's far from perfect, but I am 
getting there. So thank you for being here. I want to use these bonus episodes to explore some of the stories and research that I've come across, but then I maybe couldn't include in a previous episode. Maybe the material got cut for time or transitions, or maybe it's you know about somebody that I just have felt, gosh, there's not enough material for a whole episode here, but I really want to hang on to this information. And when I do research, I just have, you know, 80 tabs open on my computer at any given time, 80 documents that I'm writing on, maybe not 80 documents, maybe eight, but that's not a lie. Usually eight uh, that I'm typing into at any given time. And a lot of these are just ongoing research files. So for this first one, I wanted to go back to some material from an episode I did a couple of months ago, kind of at the very beginning in an early episode. And I guess I'm obviously still in early episodes. I don't know that I've quite earned the right to use that term yet. So I'll just say, let's see, it was episode three. Yes, episode three, when I did unsinkable drinking and dining and had Veronica Hinky on as my first guest, which was amazing. She was awesome. And I have a lot of had a lot of just kind of here and there research about the food and the cooks and, and the crew. And I wanted to return to that because there was about 10 pages of research and questions that I had to cut out for that one. A lot left on the table. And so for this first bonus episode, I thought we would metaphorically and actually return to the kitchen. And so this is bonus episode one, The Cooks. So first, let's get back in the mindset. Get ready to have a psychosomatic stomachache. Here is a menu for the last first class dinner served in the dining saloon aboard Titanic. And keep in mind, I'm going to assume the point of view of a passenger here and only choose one thing among several choices for each course. Keep that in mind. A variety of hors d'oeuvres, of course, to start, notably oysters a la russe. A soup course, consomme Olga, a beef broth. And that would have been, like I mentioned, one of several soups you could choose from. Third course, salmon with a mousseline sauce and cucumbers. Fourth course, filet mignon, lily, topped with potatoes and foie gras and truffles. It's intense. Fifth course, a lamb with mint sauce. Caledon Hockley likes ordering that. And green peas, uh, creamed carrots. And that would have been followed with a palate cleansing course of punch romaine. And to be clear, the quote-unquote palate cleansing punch includes rum, champagne, and orange juice. Seventh course, roast squab and cold asparagus. Eighth course, salad, some pate. It's a little bit lighter. And none of this includes dessert yet. That's a completely different course. And that would have been plates of chocolate and vanilla eclairs, French vanilla ice cream made on board, puddings. It's insane. What I think about when I read a list like that is that Hands had to make all of this. Hands dealt with, for example, the 75,000 pounds of fresh meat on board or 
the 40,000 eggs, the 11,000 pounds of fresh fish, the 40 tons of potatoes, 7,000 heads of lettuce. And those are just a few items off a big list that I'm reading from. There's, there's so many other categories of things on board food-wise. And hands served thousands of meals per day with all of this on this moving behemoth. I'm going to take that ice cream, just one item, for example, and think about the process it had to go through. And it was made by a man named Adolf Matman, we know. And actually, this information came from Veronica Hinkie's book. And he managed the ice cream and frozen sweets. His official job title on the crew list was apparently Iceman. And he had a lot of experience, was cherry-picked for this. He had worked as a pastry chef in Switzerland, had worked for a pastry shop in Lucerne that was really well-known. And apparently, according to some sources, he dreamt of working at London's luxury hotels after this stint on Titanic, that that was his goal. So just think about the ice cream and there's one man's story. And we don't even know that much, but the little bit that we know is so moving. But whole systems were in place to carry the cream, the milk, for example, just sticking with this ice cream example, to get them on the ship in Southampton, and then to keep them refrigerated on board, managed meticulously in the refrigerators. And then when it was needed by Matman, it would have to be carried. Then when it was made, it would have to be stored again. And then eventually, right, it would be scooped into some delicate little glass dish that would be set down by a dining steward in front of someone like, let's say, the Countess of Rothes. There were 899 crew on board Titanic, at best count that historians have. And it would have been 900, but for the desertion of Fireman John Coffey, who notoriously got off the ship at Queenstown, Ireland. So these 900 crew, majority male, there were only 23 women, just so you know, were organized into three departments and are, in my opinion, not spoken of or written about nearly enough across the board. And even at the time in 1912, they weren't interviewed at the US or the UK inquiries much to speak of either, which is ridiculous. So first, there was the deck department, and these were the officers and also the others involved in the actual nautical procedures, these boatswain, seamen, able seamen, the master at arms, the carpenter, all of that, of course, on top of the officers. Their survival rate was actually 65% because so many of them manned lifeboats during the sinking. And then there was the engine department, men who literally generated the energy for the ship's engines and electrical systems, engineers, firemen who ran the coal rooms, trimmers who moved the coal, that's the dirtiest work, electricians, and only 21.9% of them survived. And then with the lowest survival rate among crew at 19.6% was the victualling department, the stewards for bedrooms, for the dining rooms, and the chef, the cooks, the bakers, Basically, anyone that made the ship run like a hotel, because it did run like a hotel. 495 men and women tasked with making life comfortable for passengers, and truly, the majority of them worked in the first and second class. The victualing department all ran under the purser, and his name was Hugh Walter McElroy, and he was one of the best paid men on the ship. 
which makes sense because he had a lot to do. Every crew member's employment ran through his books. He ran the cashier's office. He paid the crew. Passengers handed over their valuables to him to keep watch over on the voyage. He had his own table in the dining saloon. We know that. And he was responsible. This was most interesting to me for the lock and key of every bit of alcohol on the ship. If anyone needed to replenish alcohol for one of the restaurants, one of the bar services, they had to go through him. Sadly, McElroy did not survive the sinking. For today, we're going to focus on just the food staff, though. Of the food staff alone, you have a huge, a huge group of people. From highly trained people like head chef Charles Proctor, who was from Liverpool, and actually he was the son of a ship's baker. And he had worked his way up starting as an assistant cook on vessels in the 1880s. He'd been at sea a long time. And then sous chef Alexis Joseph Bocate or Bochete, wasn't sure, saw that pronounced two different ways, wanted to be, wanted to cover my bases. He was Swiss and had trained in hotels, but then you also had huge teams of butchers, prep cooks, assistant cooks, grill cooks, vegetable cooks. And this isn't even yet to mention the entire team of bakers led by Charles Jockin, of course, known very well in the Titanic lore as the whiskey warmed, half drunk, uh, survivor hero. Uh, we'll talk about him more in a minute. Uh, his team even included a Vienna baker because Viennese bakeries had become so popular since the mid 19th century. The second class food ran through the same kitchen as the first, but the third class kitchen, and I, I'm using the word kitchen here, but I know probably I should be using the word galley. Um, they're interchangeable if you hear me use both, but the third class one was separate and it did not have the same modern instruments and electric gadgets as the first class, well, the one that, that ran first and second class food did. So the third class galley kitchen ran only on steam cooking using four 360 liter boilers. Just imagine that. That is hot work. That is just living in steam. So Titanic was, from a technical and legal standpoint, an immigrant ship. And in the new Passenger Act of 1849, any ship with more than 100 passengers had to carry a passenger cook. And on Titanic, it was a man named John T. Simmons. I've also seen him as William John T. Simmons. And he was aided by his assistant, Percival Gollop. And then there were storekeepers who were slightly lower on the totem pole in this food system, but they were crucial because they made sure that the food, all the food that that was perishable, dairy, meat, seafood, vegetable, fruits, stayed at the right temperature, stayed in the right humidity, and then supplied it to all of the departments, to the dining saloons, to the veranda cafe, the cafe Parisian. And to note, and I almost talked about him today, didn't quite get to him, but there is a survivor named Frank Prentice. And if you Google him, and well, if you just YouTube search him, there are all these survivor interviews with him from like the 60s and 70s that are on YouTube now. They're incredible. And from the sources that I read, he was a storekeeper. 
But then an interview I saw him on referenced him as working for the purser's office. I guess they just mean that the victualling department was under the purser, but I was a little bit confused about that. But anyway, there's a store, I believe he was a storekeeper named Frank Prentice that did survive. And if you have a few extra minutes, he's, there's a lot of video of him. He spoke a lot about the sinking over the years. So just a side note. And there was a whole, there's a whole other private food system that was working alongside all of this as well. There was an a la carte restaurant on B-Deck, open only to first class. Olympic and Titanic were the first to offer this option. And the restaurant was definitely meant to directly mimic the Ritz restaurant that had been on board the Hamburg America liner, the SS America. It was renowned. And this was French haute cuisine. This was a big deal at the time. It was a true restaurant experience, the a la carte restaurant on Titanic and my Southern accent, a la carte. And a passenger could actually also choose to eat only there if they wanted to. And if they did that, they would have received a rebate on their ticket for the food on board in first class. thought that was interesting. So none of the restaurant was managed by White Star Line at all. This was a completely private endeavor. It was run by a man named Luigi Gatti, who had run two Ritz restaurants in London. His body was recovered after the sinking. And I just happened to find this. I thought it was so moving. And on his person, among other things, were a silver matchbox, a pair of cufflinks marked LG, a knife marked Imperial Restaurant. I don't know if that was maybe a keepsake from a restaurant he had worked at. And a bunch of keys uh, with the following tags on them. Comptroller's Office Restaurant, First Class interest, Entrance to BDEC, and the other was restaurant manager entrance to Cafe Parisian. Those were the sets of keys he had on his body. It's just incredible to think about. It's sobering, really, to think that many people, that many of the people that died that night, they were dying on the job, essentially. It's a very morbid but very realistic way to put it. And if you can think about that elaborate meal that I described earlier. Then also think about this. Someone who worked in the kitchen, say someone whose main job was sauces. They were the saucier. That was a real job. If you were him, you woke up at 6 a.m. on this ship to start work on these heavy French cream sauces and this hot galley kitchen. And those would get plated not until eight o'clock that night sometimes, but they required work all day. And you might end up working until, say, 11 p.m. cleaning or prepping more things for the next day. So when the ship hit the iceberg a little before midnight, April 14th, you were maybe just then trying to go to bed. Maybe you'd just fallen asleep. You you hear, or I say you hear, but you read this over and over again in the U.S. Senate inquiries from just after the sinking, that when they interview crew and they interviewed some stewards, for example, that's the story. They say I was either had just fallen asleep and I was jolted awake by this noise, or they were, you know, taking their boots off and trying to get into their tiny little beds. And you just, I was, I was so moved by that. I know I'm saying the word move a lot, but it's so true. But when I was reading those Senate hearings again and again, that's what you would hear is they were just had gone to sleep or were just going to bed. So, so at this point you were 
just trying to get a little bit of sleep that you were allowed to get in between all this work. And suddenly you were awake again, or still awake, and you were the point person now, tired and confused, just as confused as the passengers maybe, but you were the point person for maybe a section of the ship or a lifeboat, or you were in the kitchen trying to gather supplies for the boats. And many of the victualing crew who survived did so in the manner Jockin did by hanging on till the very end. Such was the case with Isaac Hiram Maynard, sometimes called John in the sources, who was, and I'm going to butcher this word, the entre metier, entre metier, entre metier, E-N-T-R-E-M-E-T-I-E-R. Let me explain why that's so complicated. So that's what he was. But what you should understand is that the Titanic cooks often had titles that were French sounding, if not always actually adhering to some sort of precise French meaning or French origins of a given term. This was because passengers in first class were accustomed to French cuisine. In other words, many of the titles on these ships for these cooks were just anglicized names for French specialist cooks. And the entree cook, as Maynard was, was also sometimes referred to as the garnishing cook, from what I saw. So I read an entire book about the crew hierarchy on board and the crew makeup. It's a great kind of compilation book by a writer named uh, Gunter Babler. And it referred to Maynard as both positions. So if someone who has spent years researching Titanic crew and still has it referenced differently in two places in the same book. I, I don't know if, if he can't figure it out. I don't think I am. So we're going to call him entree cook and garnishing cook. So Maynard likely had three assistant cooks working with him as well. And he likely also supervised the Lagumere. Listen to these names and listen to me trying to say them. Who, unsurprisingly, if you can guess worked with vegetables. Maynard was born in Shoreham, Sussex, England, October 1880, the son of a master mariner who was a coxswain of the Shoreham Lifeboat Company and a pilot at Shoreham Harbor. He had nine siblings, and apparently his mother died in 1888. She was just 44, sadly. In the 1901 census, Isaac was absent from his father's family home and listed as a visitor at his married sister Catherine's address. And he was at that point already described as an unmarried seaman. He began, as best we can tell, to work for the White Star Line around 1902, He did get married in 1905 in Southampton, and he would, uh, Southampton would be, so much of the crew was from or lived in Southampton, so it's going to be repetitive to say that, but that's where he was based out of. And he was transferred to the Titanic from the Olympic, very common among crew, as I'm sure a lot of y'all already know, that's a very common thing. And he was actually on Olympic when it had its collision with the Hawk, with the ship, the Hawk. So during the sinking, Maynard remained on the Titanic during her very final moments and managed to pull himself aboard the overturned collapsible bee, 
where a group, and we've talked about this collapsible quite a bit before actually, where a group of about 30 men and one woman, and people always forget the one woman, Rhoda Abbott, and I don't forget her, eventually struck a balance. And these people struck a balance to stay afloat by shifting in turns. And there were a lot of stories about this boat. There are a lot of stories about this boat. We'll talk about it a hundred more times, I'm sure. And it's pretty accepted that some people were turned away once it was overloaded. Some people waited nearby to see if room would become available as people fell off, unfortunately, um, because they would be unable to hold themselves in this cold. So Maynard stayed on though. He managed to stay on and he was the one who later spotted Baker Charles Jockin swimming around the upturned boat. Charles Jockin's story is one for the ages, and it's perhaps one of the strangest stories from that night, which is why he's made it into both major films about the Titanic. He's played by George Rose in A Night to Remember and by Liam Tuohy in the 1997 movie, where he's on the stern with Jack and Rose at the end in his Baker Whites writing the stern down. And just a side note, Liam Tui is active on social media, and he's a DJ now, I think, and he liked one of the pod posts on my Twitter feed the other day. Liam, if you're listening, email me. Come on the show. <laughs> I'm, ser- I'm actually serious. Um... Oh, he won't hear this episode because he's not a patron. So I'll have to remember to say that on a regular episode. The 33-year-old head baker, Charles Jockin, as Veronica Hinky pointed out in her book, at times embellished his tale of that night quite a bit with a fair amount of whimsy, I think is how she puts it, claiming apparently at one point to his family later that he had waved to a polar bear on the iceberg. Jockin drank heavily as people in his life confirmed this over the years. He admitted it over the years. That part's not in question. And the lore says it was whiskey that he sipped at night, but apparently later he also told his family that it was schnapps. So who knows? We know that he roused his staff, his baking staff at 1215 AM, understanding the seriousness of what was happening. Jockin was born in Birkenhead, Cheshire, England, and he'd been on ships his entire life, literally, working on them since he was a child. He loaded the lifeboats with biscuits, these little hard crackers, bickies, and he locked the doors after that to the bakery, putting these iron keys in his pocket where they joined two cakes of tobacco. So he was assigned lifeboat 10 and on the official rolls, and he did spend time on deck loading boats and had maven worked on loading 10 But in the end, he was not ordered onto it when it came time to descend for the lifeboat to leave the the ship. So he went back to his quarters and took more little nips of whiskey or schnapps. My guess is it was whiskey. And this was crucial, apparently. And we also know that he spent some time throwing deck chairs off the sides of the ship. And, And again, as a man of the sea, he knew that this might be helpful for people that ended up in the water. He was experienced. And he rode that stern down all the way down at the end, he says, and glided into the water as the stern went down instead of splashing, never even wetting his hair. He found himself swimming near Collapsible B as it turned out right by Isaac Maynard. 
There was no room for Jockin to climb up, but Maynard extended his hand to him and held on to him until Lifeboat 12 approached. These are tales. There are tales, and I'm sure many of you have heard them, of Captain Smith swimming up to this collapsible at one point, of his shouting, you know, good job, lad. There are tales, and I'm sure many of you have heard them, of Captain Smith swimming up to this collapsible at one point at the very end, of his shouting, good job, good boy, lads, you know, good good lads, basically, and making no attempt to get on and save himself. And that's what engineer Walter Hurst claimed later. Uh, several accounts claim that Smith swam a baby over to this boat. Fireman Harry Sr. said explicitly in his account that Smith swam to them, baby above his head, and deposited it onto the collapsible. Maynard has somehow entered the lore as the man who took that baby from Smith, but there was no baby on this collapsible. Not that I've ever been able to surmise. And if there was, he or she probably wasn't on there long. It's horrible to say, but would have perhaps fallen, he or she would have perhaps fallen into the water. And in an article in the Globe from April 29th, 1912, Maynard, who's, keep in mind, his initial is listed as C on this document, which makes no sense. So Always keep in mind that there's a fair amount of skepticism we need to <laughs> need staying active as we look at all of these older sources. But he said, quote, I saw the captain standing on the bridge. He was fully dressed and had his cap on. And when the water rushed over the top deck, the remaining boats were carried away. Another rush of water washed me overboard. And as I went, I clung onto one of the upturned boats. There were some six other men clinging to the woodwork when we were in the water. I saw Captain Smith washed from the bridge, and afterwards saw him swimming in the water. He was still fully dressed, with this peak cap on his head. One of the men clinging to the raft tried to save him by reaching out a hand, but he would have not let him, and called out, Look after yourself, boys. I do not know what became of the captain, for I could not see him at the time. But I suppose he sank. And there's no mention of a baby in this in that account, just to note. Following the disaster, Maynard returned to England and continued working at sea into the 1920s. He died in 1948. He was 68 years old. He makes an appearance in the 1958 film as well, in A Night to Remember, portrayed by an actor named Stratford Johns in a scene of Collapsible B, holding Jockin's hand as Jockin treads water incredible story. I wanted desperately to find even more on Maynard. Um, if you know any more, let me know. If I dig into some newspaper searches, if I dig deep, deep into some newspaper archives, maybe I will. I, I need to do that at some point. And if I do, I will let you know. So another Titanic cook who I'm going to warn you, there's not a lot of info on, but 
intrigues me and really got me thinking about some themes is Charles Kennel. And he was the ship's dedicated kosher cook who actually did not survive. And it irks me how little information about him or his processes that any researchers have been able to dig up. Born in Cape Town, South Africa, we know, the 30-year-old Kennel had already served on the Olympic. And again, it was very common for crew to be transferred from the Olympic or to end up on Titanic from the Olympic. Kennel was the ship's Kennel was the ship's Hebrew cook, officially. And from what I can gather, also worked directly under a rabbi to manage Jewish passengers. The fact that Titanic had kosher food service is indicative of really important social and political developments at the time. This was roughly halfway in 1912 through a huge era of Eastern European Jewish immigration to America, which brought 2 million Jews to the United States between about 1880 and about 1924. And major passenger ocean liners crossing the Atlantic began kosher food service for these Jewish passengers who were immigrants mostly in third class and steerage, as we often have heard it. And remember, for as much as Titanic and other ships catered to the first class in appointment and decor and luxury, and just as we've discussed in painstaking a detail in painstaking attention to the detail of food and these, you know, hotel-like steward services. But keep in mind, despite all of this, immigrants were their bread and butter. Immigrants were the bread and butter of a company like White Star Line, would not have been in business without immigrants. And sorry for the tired old turnip. Sorry for the tired old turnip phrase there, bread and butter, but I think it's very true. We know that in 1905, Albert Balin, chairman of the Hamburg American Line, decided to place separate kosher facilities on all of his steamships between New York and Bremen, and others followed suit. And it was, to sum up something that is really <laughs> way too complex to sum up, but in this context, we will. And, and trust me, we'll get back to Jewish passengers on Titanic soon. But to sum up something that is is very complex It was a horrible period for Jewish people in Europe at this time. Oppression, poverty, pogroms in Russia. From the 1880s to the early 1900s, many Jews fled Russia, headed for the United States. And Jewish passengers on Titanic, as was the case with other liners that were doing this route from England to America, they were primarily refugees from Eastern Europe. They stopped in England first often to remove themselves from immediate danger. And during this period, that could have been from the threat of a pogrom, which if you don't know, is essentially a massacre, um, or of being drafted into the Russian army. And also some stopped in England simply because it was more affordable to do that, to have two stops along the way. Eli Moskowitz has written a book called The Jews of the Titanic. And some of my sources here are, just to be clear, are articles written about him and his work that I accessed online. 
there were several hundred Jews on board, and this is a quote from Moskowitz. Some of them were in first-class cabins, but most of them were in third-class, which was reserved for immigrants and where men had the lowest chances of surviving. The exact number of Jews in third-class is still unknown. Moskowitz also suggests that there may have been more people on more Jewish people on board than we know on any official list because the Jewish passengers altered their names and may have registered under a false identity. This is a period of extreme, like I said, extreme and pervasive anti-Semitism. During that time, and again, we're talking about the 1880s to the 1920s, it's estimated that 2.7 million Jews fled Russia to increase to escape this increasing religious persecution. And something called the Cantonist Decree, which I didn't know about until I researched this, and it's horrific, but it was a decree that Jewish children, and some as young as eight years old, but usually around age 12, were taken from their homes and inducted into training camps in order to prepare them to go into the Russian army at age 18 for 25 years of required service. Um, Before the ocean liners offered kosher food service, Jews who kept kosher would have had to fend for themselves. And they often brought, I mean, this meant that they brought their own food, uh, sort of picnic style, stored it the best they could on board. And keep in mind that the journey across the Atlantic also used to take almost twice as long as the week that Titanic's voyage would have taken. And truly, just so you know, prior to the turn of the century and the era of these larger liners with more well-appointed third-class areas, food and steerage, whether you were kosher or not, was a total crapshoot. Horrible. Uh, made people sick. There are a lot of stories that I ran across, um, some even deaths associated with the food on board. And so even for those passengers who didn't keep kosher, food service was, you know, it wasn't something that you could depend on at all. Um, In December 1909, the U.S. Immigration Commission reported on steerage conditions to Congress. The report described, quote, disgusting and demoralizing conditions of the old steerage in which 300 or more people would sleep in large compartments, no dining rooms, and a minimum number of tables and seats. So not even anywhere to properly sit. Charles Haas, who is, I should note, the president of the Board of Trustees for the Titanic Historical Society, and he's written quite a bit about the ship over the years, he noted in an article I came across that the newer steerage arrangements of the White Star Line, and particularly those in Titanic, provided third-class passengers with foods that they had never possibly even seen before, certainly could have never have afforded before. And he mentioned specifically oranges. And this got me thinking about my conversation with Veronica Hinky. And I remember that she, when we were talking about the Edwardian cocktails, she mentioned that even cocktails on Titanic featured fresh orange juice because fresh oranges were such an exciting kind of get 
at the time. So the third class, in most cases, were accustomed to waiting on others, Haas has said. And here, for the first time, they had stewards serving them. And there's even a notice on the bottom of the menu saying, any complaints regarding the lack of civility from a steward should be reported to the sheet. So Haas has said, quote, the third class, in most cases, was accustomed to waiting on others. And here, for the first time, they had stewards serving them. And there's even a notice on the bottom of the menu saying, any complaints regarding the lack of civility from a steward should be reported to the chief steward immediately. So this is huge that they're, this is setting an entirely new standard for the treatment of an entire class of people on this international route, that they are this respected. And that isn't much in the shadow of the million class and caste problems that Titanic sinking would end up bringing to light, but it is important to note. And a lot of one of, and a lot of the one-off episodes of other podcasts that I've listened to, you know, history podcasts that sort of jump from one topic to another each week when they've covered Titanic, I've noticed a trend of in these one-off episodes of a really digging into some sort of supposed, you know, poor condition of third class on Titanic. And it's usually the product of the host sort of just looking at one third class menu without any context or reading the thing about there were only two bathtubs. And, you know, I get it. If you come across the word gruel on a menu and you aren't a Titanic historian or even just a Titanic kind of reader in person, I get it. You know, you you kind of you build this little narrative in your head. But I just want to make sure that that's that everyone knows. Absolutely not true. You know, these conditions in third class were on the way up at this point. Haas, among others, has attempted to track down details of Titanic's kosher facilities, because oftentimes on ships and in restaurants, then as now, you know, it's customary to have kosher preparation going on in a completely different area. Uh, but a, a kosher menu, but a kosher menu has never been known to exist, or I should say known to have survived the sinking. Quote, all of the existing menus for the Titanic, to the best of my knowledge, there's no specific reference to that, Haas has said. I don't know whether that would have been done by word of mouth or maybe possibly been done at the time passengers booked their ticket. So perhaps if you were a Jewish passenger, your communications about, he's saying your communications about your kosher food might have just been verbal. So a 1911 White Star Line third class menu for the Olympic does advertise the availability of kosher meat, though. So we know that this is something that they were making very publicly known. We also know from experts that rabbis regularly inspected the liners catering departments uh, on ships like Olympic and Titanic in Southampton or in New York when they were docked. So there was a system in place for kosher cooks uh, for Charles Kennel, who I wish we knew more about. And he's obviously just turned, you know, into more of kind of a pathway of, of looking at this topic on Titanic, but 
yes, I, I wish we knew way more about him and his facilities. So this is from a 1909 Immigration Commission report, and it kind of give us gives us, though, a little bit of an indication of the role of Charles Kennel. So the report says, quote, the Hebrew steerage passengers were looked after by a Hebrew who is employed by the company as a cook and is at the same time appointed by a rabbi as guardian of the passengers. This particular man told me that he is a pioneer in this work. He was the first to receive such an appointment. It is his duty to see that all Jewish passengers are assigned to sleeping quarters that are comfortable and as good as any, and to see that kosher food is provided and prepared. So that was a report filed by someone who, you know, investigated and surveyed a ship and met with a kosher cook. I don't believe with the timeline of it being 1909 that it it could have been kennel, but you can see from that quote or hear from that quote, what a big deal it was uh, for someone like Charles Kennel, Kennel to be in that role. And one can only imagine that he took it incredibly seriously and that it was a sort of solemn duty. And I don't know, just another another peek into these jobs that if you just stare at a piece of paper, if you stare at these lists about Titanic crew, it's not very powerful. But if you peek behind a little bit, think about it a little bit deeper, it's pretty incredible. I think the takeaway for me from putting this little bonus episode together, this particular one, was a pretty stark realization that there are huge gaps in the knowledge we have about the crew. These almost 1,000 people who were part of such a delicate and intricate dance as this of caring for passengers on the ship we think of, and rightly so, as this floating palace And there's only so much that genealogical research can offer, you know, census records, family members' names, cities, but a lot of these are just dead ends. And this is where lore comes in a lot. And perhaps that's what it is, you know, a deep well of perhaps local and regional knowledge in a place like Southampton, where the majority of the crew lived. I imagine in Southampton, there's a lot more knowledge about these people. And perhaps that's a project, you know, an oral history project. I'd love to take that on one day. Um, It would be awesome. In the meantime, please contact me if you have any additional information about anything I've talked about, or if you have any ideas about crew members that you'd like me to look into for future episodes. Um, Yeah. Email me if you have any ideas for future bonus episodes. I have Guys, I have so many research folders. I can go a million different directions. And especially in this slightly slightly more casual format of a bonus episode, I think tangents, right, are a little bit more (laughs) accepted. And maybe piecemeal is a little bit more accepted. So if you're open to that, I'm open to, you know, pulling together lots of little threads. All right. Well, I highly recommend The Guide to the Titanic Crew by Hunter Babler. I believe I'm pronouncing it right. It might be Babler. It is available on Amazon. At least it was when I ordered it. 
And also I want to mention that a lot of the quotes from Charles Haas and some of the information on the Jewish story was from an article I found online from the Dayton Jewish Observer, and that was written by Marshall Weiss. Marshall Weiss, I'm sorry. And also I want to mention, of course, Veronica Hinkie's book, which I went back to again for this. It's a great, it's a great fun piece of work about the food and the drink. And also I always forget to mention that she writes a, a quite a bit about style and the fashion too in that book. Uh, but that is Unsinkable Dining, Drinking, and Style by Veronica Hinkie would make a great Christmas gift if you've got someone in your life that's a Titanic person. So again, thank you to her. And thank you guys for being here. We picked up another uh, Patreon member just yesterday. That's Catherine Russell. Hi, Catherine. And I will mention you on a regular episode, but I just wanted to say, go ahead and say thank you here as well. All right. Sorry for the little bit of rambling. <laughs> like I said at the beginning, this is, it's a little bit of a strange feeling during the bonus episode and I'm, I'm learning and I'm figuring it out. All right. I will see you again here next month for another bonus episode. And in the meantime, back on the regular feed for a lot more coming up. Cheers, you guys.